multidimensional transforming musical linguistic objects self Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, I hope you're not getting tired of this series of Terrence McKenna podcasts, because there are still a few more to go. And in today's program, Terrence talks about the cascade of history, human-machine symbiosis, and the Internet, among other things. And we'll begin with his rap about time and the evolution of animal life on this planet. So, let's hear what Terence McKenna thinks about all the changes now taking place at such a mind-bending rate here on our beautiful little planet. The way I think of it is, I think that, uh, you know, Maxwell's laws of thermodynamics are only part of the story. And that you also have to look at the work that Ilya Prigozhin did in the 60s and 70s, where he showed that there is this principle, which they call different things, but basically it was random perturbation to higher states of order, and that this occurred in, in systems of all levels of complexity, that actually sometimes systems spontaneously organize themselves into more complex forms so uh, in the entropic state that you're talking about which resembles a Bernoulli gas a model of dissipation of the particles of gas the opposite end of the spectrum would be this notion that all points in the matrix become cotangent which requires a higher dimension but is still trivial and, and that's what I think it is. I think that biology, like this process which we've called novelty or complexification, that we say is increasing through time, starts simple, ends complicated, one way of talking about it is to think of it as, as language is in conquest of dimensional expression or something is in is is seeking to manifest itself in a domain of uh, time and space of higher and higher dimension because if you go back to the earliest uh, biological emergence it's they're like fixed slimes these early life forms they're essentially points they don't move through space they have no eyes they have no organs of perception. They are simply points of being. Well, then, still later in the process, they break free from their stationary points and they become motile. But they still have no perception. No, They're just groping now. Now they're groping specks of being. And they've gone from being points to the equivalent of lines well, then finally, light-sensitive chemistry sequesters itself in the membrane, and these things begin to have a notion of a gradient, of that the action is where the light is, that the food is where the light is. And so then this generates the concept here and there, which is a time-bound concept suddenly time springs into being there is the notion of of the execution of will over time well then the rest of the story of the evolution of animal life right up to 50,000 years ago is simply the story of better eyes better muscles better coordination better ability to move through this revealed topological manifold with a temporal Axis, but then, um, with with the advent of of spoken language, what spoken language is about is the recovery of memory at a later date. It's a data it's a data recall system, and then you talk about the past, and you not only talk about it, but you strategize from it, hunting strategies, erotic fantasy, mate-getting uh, 
strategies. When you get to writing, this time-binding function is now totally explicit. The game is out in the open. The purpose of these behaviors is to keep the past from slipping away. And so we write down king lists and dynastic histories and, and this sort of thing. Well, from this point of view of that I'm pushing here for a moment, that uh, evolution is the... Uh, conquest of dimensionality you can see then that the, the primate con, the primate conquest of time through time binding technologies is the phenomenon that we call human history this is apparently what we're about this is why we speak why we write why we invent phonetic alphabets and mathematical notation and co- because we are binding time well you can then propagate that process forward to say well then what what would satisfy this drive well nothing less than a complete conquest of time itself in the same way that as we look back in the history of biology we see these other dimensional barriers were crossed from stationary, from from in situ existence to motility to a sense of light to coordination of three-dimensional space, now coordination of fourth-dimensional space. And to make this leap to the full coordination of 4D, it requires some kind of machine symbiosis. It requires prostheses. It requires that we redesign and extend our nervous system over the entire planet and that we undergo some kind of metamorphosis and become instead of, you know, semi-cannibalistic primates, machine tenders of a global nervous system, some of which is gold and copper and glass and some of which is flesh and DNA and neurons. And this whole thing is in a state of self, a self-designing foment. And, uh, and that, you know, I don't know how we got here, but it leads me to the second point I wanted to make earlier when I was talking about novelty. I said there were two things which science had overlooked, and then I discussed the first one, which is, that nature is a novelty-producing and conserving engine. The second thing that science has overlooked and culture has overlooked that is related to the first, and it's this. It's that this process of producing novelty that the universe is about is not going on at a steady rate. It's going on faster and faster as we approach the present. It's like uh, what mathematicians call a cascade. It began slowly and has moved with greater and greater acceleration from the very first moments of its existence. So the early history of the universe is dull news. It's slow moving. I mean, stars are condensing. Galaxies are ordering themselves. This is the stuff of of millennia, of tens of millennia, of greater spans of time. Once you get down to the last 500 million years on this planet, biology is is the main show. Geology and astrophysics have receded into the background and, and where the action, the mutation, the change, the shifts is happening is on the surface of planets in interface with uh, atmospheres and cosmic environments and asteroidal impacts and melts and all these various things that went on. Uh, there is a period for life before that, a long, long period, the Archeozoic, but it's, you talk about Dullesville, I mean, there's nothing going on there. Well, then when you reach uh, the last million years, it's as though, you know, this, this process of the emergence of novelty both concentrates itself in nature into a single line, the, the hominids, 
but it also intensifies itself by orders of magnitude. So change is now then, it is then happening on a scale of hundreds of years. You know, languages are changing, pottery designs. Uh, and as we approach the present, this becomes more and more furious. Now, and so what novelty theory is saying is this is not a, a, uh, an easily explained phenomenon. It's not simply a natural consequence of our being in the world. That's looking at it backwards. Somehow, our being in the world means that the world process is approaching some kind of definitive cusp in its development. In other words, that human history is the shockwave of some greater event about to emerge out of the order of nature. That human history, 25,000 years is all it is, is like a shimmer, an aura, something which flashes across animal nature in the geological millisecond before the thing uh, goes cosmic or whatever it is that it's going to go. And so for us, you know, human history has this enormous dramatic impact because our lives last 70 or 80 years if we're lucky. I mean, we're as ephemeral as mayflies. For us, human history is 1,500 generations. But in terms of the species, it's, it's, it's a fever. It's a moment that has come upon us. And now we're deep, deep, deep into it. And deep enough into it, I think, that we can begin to actually talk about what lies at the other, at the other side. Uh, and it's, you know, our religions have become almost the architectures of our social hopes. And the, this coincidence of calendrical synchronism that we're undergoing. And what I mean by that is that the Mayan civilization um, fixated on uh, the the heliacal rising of the winter solstice sun and the uh, galactic center, an event which occurs only once every 26,000 years, occurs in 2012. They fixated on this. And our calendar, you know, reformed by, by papal rationalists in the 15th century and originally founded by a Roman dictator, uh, misses the same 26,000-year node with a millennial date by only 12 years. So, you know, that's 0.001% on a scale of of 10,000 years. So, for all practical purposes, these two calendars both reach very important culmination dates, uh, very near to each other in eternity, if you think about how much time that is. So, what does this mean? Well, if you're a Jungian or, or you know, believe in the greater, larger dynamics of the unconscious, it, it means that on the wheel of cosmic time, somehow the appointment of, a wor- of the end of a world year has, uh, has arrived. Why is it keyed to the galactic center? I wouldn't, at this point, care to speculate. I could be dragged into it, but it's probably not the best way to spend our time. But the the point is that this phenomenon of novelty conservation, which has been going on for a very long time throughout the whole life of the universe, is now happening so rapidly that it's down into the scales of time where it's discernible in a human lifetime. In fact, less than a human lifetime. Now change defines everything, even for such microbes as ourselves, where before we were embedded, as it were, in the much more slow-moving processes of climate change and uh, 
and uh, glaciation and advance and retraction and that sort of thing. Now we make our own time. And we even talk about downloading ourselves into machines. Well, as we sit here, we're functioning at about 100 hertz, about 100 cycles a second. If you were downloaded into even today's desktop computer, you'd be running at 200 megahertz. Suddenly, 2012 would appear as far away in time as the bust up of Pangea is in the other direction because you would have stretched time. All time is is how much you can jam into a moment. It's very easy to suppose that we're on the brink of a, of a weird kind of pseudo-immortality where time spent in circuitry is essentially time spent in eternity. And uh, people will choose toward the close of their lives to migrate uh, into the virtual realms where uh, the laws of physics are replaced by the laws of the programmer's imagination. You really then are entering in <coughs> to your own private Idaho, so to speak. Teilhard Desjardins, for those of you who don't know his work, was a Jesuit uh, paleontologist and primatologist who wrote in the 1950s uh, The Omega Point, The Phenomenon of Man. And in a way, nothing I say or little that anybody has said about cyberspace, about the meltdown of humanity into some electronic collectivity, has been surpassed by Teilhard de Chardin. He had this idea that human beings were on this earth and that they would generate what he called the noosphere. And the new sphere was simply the atmosphere of electronic and radar and radio and telegraphic and television signals which surround the earth, that we would build a new atmosphere, as it were, a technosphere of information. And information is a very key concept in all of this. What I call novelty, you could arguably call information what I call habit, you could arguably call uh, uh, noise. And, you know, this is a vision of, of being where there's a struggle between these two antithetical forces. One, described by the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. The other, described by novelty theory, Prigogine's non-equilibrium thermodynamics, etc., etc., and, and they are, in every situation, locked in struggle. The amount of order and disorder in any situation is dictated by the unique configuration of the local struggle between these two forces, if you want to put it that way. But the good news is, these two, it's not a Manichaean it doesn't go on forever. These two forces are not quite equally pitted. Over time, novelty wins. Order wins. Order triumphs over disorder and builds higher states of order. So in a way, you could think of the whole process as what engineers call a damped oscillation. That habit is this oscillation in a space of perfection and it is eventually damped by the by the surrounding telos toward concrescence. A lot of the words <clears throat> that I use to talk about this are taken out of Alfred North Whitehead, who's, to my mind, the great unread philosopher of the 20th century. And he wrote a book called Process and Reality, in which he talks tries to build a general vocabulary for talking about being. And, you know, it comes off as very psychedelic and very chaotic, dynamical kind of anticipation. Check out uh, uh, Whitehead. The, the thing which has, you know, made my made novelty theory difficult to sell in terms of 
the ugly knobs and warts on it as a theory, were that it has this built-in crazy assumption, which is that in the very short term, meaning the next 15 or 20 years, the world will, uh, in part, uh, completely transform itself. And so it's in the category with apocalyptarian thinking, millenarian thinking, miraculous thinking, deus ex machinas, uh, squirrely revelations, all of that, all of which I abhor. But you can't escape the mathematical implications once you draw the curve of the asymptotic acceleration into novelty. There's a group of people, you can read their stuff on the internet, they're called extopians or singularists. And they're very hard-headed engineering types, libertarian geeks, not psychedelic, not in spiritual in any sense of the word, and they propagate out <laughs> curves such as the human population curve, the curve of uh, um, information, number of papers being published, the curve of the amount of energy being released, so forth and so on. All these curves reach infinity somewhere before 2025. What does it mean to say these curves reach infinity? Nobody knows. It's a singularity. It doesn't make sense. It's a mathematical contradiction. What it means is your model is broken. What is going to happen has so many dimensions embedded in it that your simple propagations of curves method of analyzing it are giving you crazy data that, that makes no sense. And, you know, I'm being semi-unemployed, I have the leisure to spend many hours a day reading journals and surfing the net and so forth, and I'm telling you, all these esoteric fields of knowledge, all these solid-state physics, quantum encryption, uh, drug design, genetic engineering, long base interferometry, on and on and on, these cabals of secret societies, in each case, they're reaching out for the ultimate, uh, the ultimate pieces of knowledge in their field, and no one is coordinating the implications of all this across the face of the rising tidal wave of understanding. Uh, what really is happening is that a, a, a very you know, I wouldn't say a complete control of the world of matter and energy is coming into being, but a, a, a leap forward is being taken. And all under the aegis of this key concept of information. Uh, information is more primary than time and space, more primary than light and electromagnetism. Information is the stuff of being. It's all you will ever know. It's all you can ever know. The rest are ghostly hypotheses to explain the behavior and the presence uh, of information. And it's almost as though it has a syntactical life of its own. It's almost as though, you know, it's a, it's a virtual life form of some sort that is running on a, on a primate platform uh, I read a very interesting thing by um, Danny Hillis who wrote The Connection Machine and he was talking about songs and he said uh, uh, you know primitive human beings especially young juveniles like to imitate each other and make strange noises and some strange noises are easier to make than others. And so you begin to have a population of short bursts of strange noise. And these populations, and we'll call them songs, just to make it easy, just short bursts of strange noise. And some of these songs are easy to remember and some are not. And that's the environment of selection. 
so the easy to remember songs survive and the hard to remember songs go extinct and there's only a limited number of human beings to sing the songs so the songs must also compete for this resource which is the human singer and to this point the human beings have been like a parasite uh, or the host of a parasite these songs have conferred no adaptive good at all to the human beings but when the songs begin to aggregate around repetitious behavior because this that's where there's a high likelihood of survival because that's where there's a high likelihood of repetitious of, of repetition then you begin to have a syntactical net and i think that in a sense this is our situation that we were early parasitized by a, a kind of virtual life form that lives only in syntax and is essentially time sharing and piggybacking our nervous system but at some point we insisted around it somewhat the way a cell membrane trapped early bacteria and turned them into mitochondria so now we can think with this linguistic uh, symbiote that shares our our brain space however it it's very interesting this idea i mean this may seem trivial to you it, it's new to me so i'm into it I read this book by <clears throat> George Dyson called Darwin Among the Machines and I highly recommend this book. This is a great book, fun book, Darwin Among the Machines. And one of the points that he makes in there that I had sort of, I mean when you hear it you say, yeah, I always sort of knew that, but I had never quite grokked it in its full implications. One of the points he makes in there is that when we talk to each other, when we make sense to each other what we say can be perfectly formula uh made formulaic through symbolic logic in other words that the branch of mathematics called symbolic logic is capable of portraying human language and human logical processes perfectly but the interesting thing is that this language symbolic logic is the language which machines speak with great fluency this is the great bridge between us and the machines that fundamentally we speak the same language that and to a human being and and uh to a microprocessor mean the same thing so there is this uh this there is no great barrier it's all conceptual uh between us and uh machine intelligence machine intelligence is the most likely form of alien intelligence uh to arrive and complicate our social dialogue because in a sense it's already here in a sense we are putting a great deal of effort into creating it and in a sense its emergence depends on these very same appetite for novelty that allowed us to squeeze ourselves out of the rules of molecular chemistry and again it's it's happening at these very high megahertz rates Uh, machine evolution will not be like human evolution because what it took us 50,000 years to achieve it can achieve potentially through distributed processing in minutes hours Hans Moravec says of artificial intelligence we may never know what hit us you know it will simply be come to be and what would that look like we have no no idea or its relationship to us at all yeah linguistic analog the morphogenetic yeah i hadn't thought of it that way but it's it's like that uh 
novelty theory and Rupert's theories of the morphogenetic field are very closely related. He doesn't believe in a temporal attractor. He believes things are pushed by necessary casuistry. But the unfolding of the morphogenetic field and the unfolding of the, of the time wave, it's, you're talking about the same thing. You're talking about the four... You see, in a way, what science is all about is it will tell you what is possible. If you want to know if something is possible, you ask these expert in that science. But what science can't tell you and what is what you usually really want to know is out of the class of the possible what things will actually occur and we have no theory for this strangely enough we have no theory for out of the class of the po- I mean I suppose somebody who was a fundamentalist or, or some kind of Christian might say well God's will out of the class of what is possible, what comes to be is God's will. Well, that would be one theory of what it is that winnows the actual from the possible. A scientist would say pre-existing conditions. Uh, in other words, somehow the, the circumstances into which any phenomenon is born skew it toward its ultimate developmental end state. I mean, this is the idea. It's almost like the law of karma or something, that by the circumstances into which you are, you find yourself, then you are carried forward to some conclusion that was inevitable based on that. Uh, novelty theory is not a... Uh, it's not uh, predestination. It doesn't say that the future has happened. If you believe the future has happened, you have all kinds of philosophical problems on your hands. Because, uh, you know, for truth as a concept to have any meaning, you have to have error. If you think what you think because you can't think anything else, which is what predestination is, well then what what does the search for truth and meaning look like in a cosmos like that? It's meaningless, no. In a predestined cosmos, you think what you think because that's what you think and you can't think anything else and it doesn't have anything to do with truth. So there must be at least that much freedom, freedom to err in the mind. But of course... The mind through the body is an extension into the world. You know, for all the the huffing and puffing of modern science and neurophysiology, they still can't tell you how you can think, I will close my hand and close it. I mean, this is, this is mind over matter. This is telekinesis. This is, uh, science is just completely baffled as to how this can take place at all. It's a, it's a fundamental miracle. Been good for 5,000 years, still knocking them dead. And it's, it's by that trick that we don't understand how it's done that will and mind and intent enters the world and cities get built and armies sent marching and religious revelations written down and, uh, and so forth and so on. Uh, but I, I think that the... You see, for years I was like crying in the wilderness about this ramping up towards some kind of hyper-complex unravelment of the social machine in the very short term. But now I feel much more confident than I was ten years ago. Now ten years closer to the end date because uh, the Internet looks to me like the backbone of the emergent thing. I mean, the Internet is a huge and not fully comprehended cultural step 
that we have now totally committed ourselves to. It's nothing less than the building of a, of a thinking nervous system the size of the entire planet. And our most important, we're wedded to this thing. Our banking, military planning, corporate to capitalization, long-term planning, design process, inventory control, resource extraction, everything is running on this strange companion that we, we built to be indestructible because we built it at the height of the Cold War. And, uh, and so, you know, it has no nodes of control and, uh, and it's the most complex thing ever put in place on this planet since DNA, you know, cooked itself out of the primal ocean. Uh, yeah. Again, somehow uh, are those people that have had these experiences going to be spared or certain type of... Uh, uh, yeah, you put your finger on it. It's that to the degree that people are psychedelic, they will be less anxious about what will happen. Because what psychedelics show you is that there is life after history. There is something outside of culture. If you don't know that by one means or another, then you will define what is happening as, you know, the end of the world, the literal apocalypse, the collapse of everything, when in fact that's not what it is. It's just the collapse of historical, print-based, cultural models and models of the self and the psyche, I embrace it. I mean, I, we're not about to blow out here or go extinct, and we, did not, we never escaped from the yoke of nature. Nature is, you know, nature has taken some hits in this neighborhood. 65 million years ago, an object encountered the earth that nothing larger than a chicken on the entire planet survived that encounter. And guess what it cleared the way for? The flowering plants, the source of all these compounds we're so interested in, and the ascendancy of the mammalian order, our dear selves. Uh, we, we are here because of the most appalling bad hair day this planet ever endured. <laughs> So, you know, when you start judging this stuff and saying, you know, what's good, what's bad, uh, it's, it's very hard to say. Uh, nature is incredibly profligate and will take enormous chances uh, to preserve novelty, to keep the novelty game uh, going. And so I feel, you know, that in a sense nature will open a way for us. Uh, nature is interested in this process, we represent the greatest step in organizational uh, uh, realignment and redesign since life left the oceans. Yeah, it's grace. It's you know, it's the will of God that makes well, these more and more complex systems fall into place. Um, this relates to a question which was unanswered here this morning, which was about teleology. Uh, the Darwinian theory of evolution is, is very hostile to teleology. First of all, what is teleology? Teleology is the idea that the universe has a purpose. And Darwinian evolution is hostile to this because Darwinian evolution arose in 19th century England where the reigning intellectual paradigm was called deism. And deism is the idea that, the, that God made the universe like a clockmaker, and then he went away and left it going. Uh, and in other words, the divine clockmaker, the universe was structured by a force which has now withdrawn from it. And Darwin and his circle were very clearly atheistic, and they wanted to see biology as requiring no purpose to direct it at all. And so they created the dual concept of random mutation and natural selection. Random mutation is just that because of copying errors, radiation, drift, and a toxic material in the cellular environment, that the DNA messages degrade. 
So that's mutation. Then random selection is that this DNA is then subjected to the selective winnowing out that the environment uh, lays against it. So by the meshing of these two processes, this is Darwinian theory, by the meshing of random mutation and natural selection, you get the slow incremental emergence of new forms. Both And these forms, some of which confer advantage and some don't. Most don't, and they're eliminated. Those that do stay in the system, and incrementally the system uh, seeks to come to equilibrium with the selective forces that are operating on it. But these selective forces, which are continent, incidental radiation from space, weather, climate change, so forth and so on, because these factors are themselves changing over time, mutating, the system can never come to equilibrium. And so for Darwinian evolution, evolution is what's called a random walk. The system destabilizes, it corrects itself. It destabilizes, it corrects. Destabilizes, corrects. And after billions of years of this, lo and behold, you get animals like ourselves. But uh, these 19th century evolutionists were keen to say, do not imagine that this is God's purpose or that the final form was prefigured in the original form. No, this just happened like this. Well, now uh, we've had 150 years to absorb all this. In the meantime, Mendelian genetics, the particulate nature of the gene has been understood. The molecular nature of the gene has been understood. We can say some new things about this. Also, we are no longer under the spell of deism. That's a cranked idea that nobody is that keen for. Uh, And so it's a different intellectual world. Well, now when we look at nature, we see uh, a a kind of different picture. We see that where Darwin said nature is all red in tooth and claw, we see that the way to make your, to be a successful species the way to survive is to make yourself indispensable to your neighbors. Then, instead of attempting to push you down and extinguish you, if you can cut deals with everybody in your neighborhood, providing various chemicals or energy supplies or other affects in the environment, then everybody will begin to pull your way. So, in fact, cooperation is what is maximized among species. And a, a huge complex organic system like a coral reef or a rainforest is actually attempting to come to an equilibrium of balance that is the point of greatest benefit for the greatest number of organisms and species uh, in the system. Well, this is in a whole different picture. Uh, and it opens the possibility. Uh, I, I These new sciences like complexity theory, global dynamics, chaos theory, have made it now respectable to think about processes that are drawn by something in the future rather than pushed from behind. In the 19th century, that was inconceivable. All that was known was the chain of cause and effect. But now we see that the temporal landscape has what are called basins of attraction in it and that certain processes are actually drawn forward by their presumed end states. And so uh, it, it seems less outlandish to us, I think, to suppose there is a purpose. And also we see a level of global integration and global mutation that Darwin couldn't have even dreamed of. The idea of elements of time having their particular qualities, have you correlated that with astrology at all? Well, it's somewhat like astrology, except astrology believes that planets and stars and the arrangements 
among them represent shifts in a kind of energy field. In a way, this is more abstract. Uh, Wang Pi, who was a medieval Chinese mystic, his thought comes eerily close to my own in that he, the way he pictured this was that you have the sequence moving in an abstract dimension, but you have the sequence moving at a certain speed and overlaying that is another sequence moving at a different speed and over that another version of the King Wen sequence moving at another speed and that a given moment is a slice through these levels that creates a unique juxtaposition of the levels so it is in that sense very astrological but it's all calculated uh, independent of any observation of nature although if it's true then it's interesting that there are correlations in the cycles in the King Wen sequence to astrological cycles specifically the system that I elaborated on one level contains an, a cycle of 384 days. That's the number of lines, 6 times 64, the number of lines in a complete sequence of the I Ching, 384 days. Well, it happens to be 13 lunar cycles, exactly. Well, then if you take it times 64, you get a number, 67 years, point one oh four two five days, which is six sunspot cycles. And sunspot cycles also occur in 33-year cycles. Well, uh, it's known that the Han, early Han Dynasty Chinese knew about sunspot cycles. They were the first people to observe them. Uh, so, you know, without hypothesizing super technologies or any kind of Atlantis type stuff we see that the King Wen sequence could have been a kind of gear used in a system of multiplicands that predicted lunar cycles sunspot cycles on two levels and then with one further multiplication this processional great year this 26,300 year uh, cycle so it's a neat kind of resonance calendar and uh, given the sorry state of Chinese calendar making in historical time uh, it's, it's interesting that you can derive a very accurate calendar from the I Ching, more accurate than the calendar we're presently operating on. If you use a 384 day year length, the problem of course is that a year of that length would precess against the sun but this may have been for political or religious or philosophical reasons acceptable at the time that calendar was formulated my fancy is that there was a war a calendrical war in the pre-Shang dynasty time a war between the solar materialists and the lunar uh, mystics and it was basically a war about how the calendar should be because you know the calendar is the largest frame of reality uh, for instance our calendar with its fixed equinoctial points is a, is a lie it, it, our calendar promotes a belief in the permanence of eternity when in fact everything is slipping and sliding around the fact that the equinoctial points are traversed every year on the same solar year day uh, gives rise to a kind of patriarchal uh, hubris arguably yeah yeah. the difference between a schizophrenic and a, a psychedelic traveler being that maybe one can't navigate its way back and I was wondering two things. Um, one, have you have any work with schizophrenics and, and what was that interaction like? And the other was um, more a take on, on uh, modern culture, the, the common channel surfing couch potato, that it, it has some schizophrenic quality to it. And uh, 
I was thinking of um, the movie Twelve Monkeys with the Brad Pitt character in the asylum when he says that uh, the thing that separates a sane citizen from insanity is uh, how much his cult- he allows his culture to straitjacket him. Well, I don't know. Schizophrenia is a very complicated subject because uh, several syndromes which are quite different are all lumped under schizophrenia. You know, the probably the kind of schizophrenia that I'm sensing you want to talk about is what's called process schizophrenia. This is where somebody becomes really spun up and it can come after days of not sleeping or something and then people begin to have really funny ideas and they want to tell everybody about them and they want to take, you know, they go to the manager of the business with fantastic ideas that are going to make a whole bunch of money. The problem is they just don't make sense to anybody but them or they start hearing voices or they become convinced that they have a special mission And it turns out that this phenomenon, which we pathologize pretty confidently, actually is is not that different from people who are having real legitimate breakthroughs and understanding their lives in new ways. It's a shifting and reordering of the dominance of the psyche. And I tend to agree he's dead now, but um, R.D. Lang, the English psychiatrist R.D. Lang what I observed of schizophrenia went on at La Cerrera in those days that are described in true hallucinations and my really strong conviction coming out of that was it should not be interfered with by depressive drugs that it's some kind of, uh, of a process of a healing of, a, of an acting out and that the biggest favor you can do the person is to let them to the greatest degree possible do what they want to do and not interfere with them and if you medicate them and uh, and incarcerate them the thing is aborted and squashed and distorted and then they have a great deal of trouble ever getting their act together I was very fortunate. I mean, how many psychiatric residents have ever seen an untreated schizophrenic? You know, I mean, the minute these people hit the front door of a hospital, they're given stelazine or lithium or something. Uh, and yet, you know, it seems more as though Jung was on the right track. This is a process in the dynamics of the unconscious that wants to work itself out to a conclusion. Now, obviously, if they have violent fantasies or or seem dangerous to themselves or other people, you can't let that go on. But I think the treatment of schizophrenia is largely at the convenience of the practitioner. And people are warehoused. And, you know, if I were going crazy, I think the thing that would really throw me over the edge would be to be put with a bunch of really crazy people. It's always seemed so odd to me that if you go bananas, they put you with all the other people who've gone bananas, who are the worst models for you to be in the presence of and are quite unsettling to normal people, let alone people who are having boundary dissolution and self-identity problems. So, yeah, yeah. There's some studies that show that what it creates is a... In schizophrenic states, there's a more common shift in brain brainwave rhythms, which is associated with an enhanced immune system and resultant less cancer. And I've been curious as to whether or not the use of psychedelics may also provide those frequent shifts, which are probably more necessary to health. So as soon as we depress, for instance, schizophrenics, what happens is they go back to normal cancer rate uh, of the normal population, so their immune system doesn't function as well. So in terms of looking at enhanced immune function, whether or not frequent shifts, which coming in and out of psychedelics may... And I don't know if you know anything about that. Well, in some sense, the kind of process schizophrenia, the messianic, grandiose schizophrenia that we're talking about here, is an overexpression of self-definition. 
And in that sense, you would expect an enhanced immune system to accompany it. The immune system defines the chemical self. So if the self is somehow being overexpressed to the point where it becomes a pathology or a burden on the functioning of the social group, then it wouldn't surprise me that... Uh, that the immune system would be functioning uh, very efficiently. Um, uh, what else do I want to say about this? Uh, oh, well, I guess that's it. Well, I guess that's about it for us today, too, huh? Say, did you catch that bit that Terrence did about the Internet? Just keep in mind that uh, this talk was given in the summer of 1998, and the net was still pretty new and unknown to the majority of people, even here in the United States. And it was uh, during some conversations with Terrence during that weekend, along with the dialogue between him and Ralph Abraham that Saturday night, that inspired my last book, The Spirit of the Internet, which, by the way, you can read online on the matrixmasters.com site and uh, as soon as I can get around to it I'm going to put it up in PDF version uh, online you can just download it for free and print it out yourself and read it a little easier than reading the HTML pages Uh, soon actually that'll be the only way you're going to get a hardback copy or a printed copy because I've finally gotten down to the last few hundred of the paperback copies soon I can start stop carrying all that around every time I move <laughs> well it's uh, really too bad Terrence isn't still with us today so he could join in some of the discussions about uh, human machine Im- symbiosis that are taking place on some of the more esoteric online lists today his understanding I think of uh, how big a role the internet is was going to play and is going to play in the years immediately ahead is you know well, he was just really ahead of his time right back then can you imagine what a fantastic rap he could spin off from one of the current discussions on uh, some of the AI lists about the odds of the first general artificial intelligence to manifest itself being in favor of that event taking place on what is currently the largest interconnectable public computer complexes in the world, namely Google's. I'll lead you to speculate on that one on your own for now. It does present some interesting possibilities, though, (laughs) particularly since Google already uses a lot of uh, technology, a lot of bots, robots, to do its work, and they're uh, really good at what they do. For one example, when uh, these podcasts started becoming more popular, I had to find a way to pay for the increased bandwidth that we were using, and so I decided to try uh, adding a strip of Google's AdSense uh, ads on some of my blogs. So at the main MatrixMasters.com site, I decided to test it first in my War on Drugs blog, just to be sure there wasn't any, uh, you know, any way that they would put up some ads with that, you know, just say no bullshit and stuff like that. So so I did a, a test, and uh, the very first ad that came up was for legal services from a good friend of mine, Richard Boyer. Uh, some of you probably already recognize that name, because in addition to uh, his private law practice, uh, Richard is uh, director of the Center for Cognitive Liberty, which is one of the websites you definitely need to have bookmarked if you don't already. You can find that at www.cognitiveliberty.org. Anyway, when Google, uh, when the Googlebot pulled that ad up first, I, <laughs> I knew right then that Google probably knows a lot more about me than most of my friends do. Because I can guarantee you that uh, Google is the only one of that group who's read every single one of the million-plus words on the thousands of pages I've posted on the MatrixMasters.com site in the last seven years. So beware, or uh, (laughs) I would suggest rather you be bold and uh, blog your thoughts on Google. After all, if the big artificial intelligence wakes up in Google's network one day, don't you want it to know a little about you in your own words? Well, 
I think I'll leave you with that one to chew on for a while. Maybe have a little smoke, kick back, and kick around some of these thoughts, you know, some of these out-of-the-box ideas. What have you got to lose, you know, if you start thinking way outside of your particular cultural box these days? You know, unless you're perfectly satisfied with the life you're living right now, you don't have a lot to lose just by trying a few new ideas on for size. Give it a try, you know. Thinking can really be a lot of fun, at least when you get really far outside the box. <laughs> just be sure to keep one foot on the ground, though, you know. We, we want to be sure to see you all again back here in the Psychedelic Salon for our next podcast when we'll continue this series of Terrence McKenna from the summer of 1998. So thanks for being here today. And as always, thanks to Chateau Hayuk for the use of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>